Well, welcome to what I hope is going to be the first of many Hebrews classes. Because I love this book. And I could talk about it for, well, a long time. But I I won't hold you that long. We'll try to keep it down to an hour. So if you'd remind me when I'm trespassing the time, because I'm likely to do that with this topic, just to give you an introduction of what we plan to do. I've got five weeks in this grouping, and no, I do not intend to get through the book of Hebrews in five weeks. Um, in fact, there's actually, on the calendar, there's going to be three five-week clumps over the next 14 months at different times. So I'm going to try to do it in 15 weeks eventually, but for now we've got five, and I would expect, Lord willing, I'll get through four chapters, Lord willing, because the first two chapters of Hebrews are just flat-out special. I could spend six or eight weeks in them all by themselves, but Given the fact I'm going to try to get through it, well, the goal would be four chapters. And if you see at the top of the outline, I've got Hebrews 1 through 4 in parentheses. That's, that's the goal. Try to get through that. Do we not have enough copies? Let's make a couple more. Thank you. We're good. You can share, too. Okay, thank you, guys. Here comes Angie. All right. So let me, let's begin uh, with prayer. And um, Lord God, we come to you. We're very grateful for the opportunity to gather and listen to your word, to con- contemplate your word, Lord God, because Hebrews is a book that calls us to consider you and to think hard and long about you. Lord God, please give us the grace to pay close attention to what we hear from your word, that we may not drift from it as the writer of the Hebrews commands us, Lord. And we pray that you would open our eyes and let us behold wonderful things from your word. Please bless us. In your son's name, amen. making more copies or are we just going to go with no, what we have? We got enough? Okay. Unfortunately, I have... Here's, here's a copy. This is not stapled if someone wants another one. Everybody got one. Hold on to me. Okay. No, I've got mine. I have a copy up here. So, first of all, I'm going to give a quick introduction to Hebrews. We'll cover all 13 chapters. In this introduction, just to give you a flavor for what this book holds, just to let you know, there's a genre to Hebrews. It's considered a letter, an epistle. And if you look at the last chapter of Hebrews, you would see that. It looks very obvious. Chapter 13 sounds very much like the ending of most of the other letters that we read in the New Testament. Like all of Paul's and Peter's, they all end the same way. So it ends like a letter, but it doesn't begin like one. 
What makes Hebrews different is there's no introduction, no address as to whom he's speaking. We have to kind of guess from the context who he's speaking to. And he just launches into this poetic, expansive, amazing view of God and his son. It's just kind of like a, wow, where'd this come from? It starts out amazing. In fact, I'm going to try to get through the first four verses. Try to get through the first four verses today. That's how amazing it is. And a lot of people, the way this is written, it's very eloquent. It's written in very, very classical Greek. It's different from the way Paul usually writes or does write. Because we don't know who wrote it. He didn't, nobody claims it. Um, but it's, it's eloquent, and it, it reads like a sermon. That's what a lot of, um, a lot of scholars think. It's a sermon. Now, the only problem with that is if I heard this sermon delivered, I would be lost within three minutes easily. I wouldn't know where it was going because it's all over the place, but it's, it does, it's just taking us somewhere. So it's sermonic. It's very rhetorical. It's very well written and very well stated with big words that aren't used anywhere else in Scripture. Some of the words in here, they're one-offs. You'll never see them again. So he's a very creative writer, a very eloquent writer, and a, a writer who's steeped in classical Greek. <clears throat> the author himself calls it, at the very end of the book, in Hebrews 13, 22, he says it's my word of exhortation. It's just a word of exhortation, a word of encouragement. So it's, in that sense, it is like a sermon. That's what a sermon is meant to do. It's meant to encourage the hearers. They're supposed to hear the word preached and have their faith built. And certainly Hebrews does that. But, as we said, the author is unknown. And one of the most commonly asked questions anybody ever has of the book of Hebrews is probably the least important one. Who wrote it? <laughs> Obviously, God, God didn't I want us. God did. God wrote it, yeah. Isn't that good enough? Is that all we need to know? Now, historically, it's lumped with the letter of Paul, letters of Paul. In fact, the oldest manuscripts include Hebrews in a collection of Pauline letters. So some of the oldest manuscripts, they have all the Pauline letters, and Hebrews is in the middle of them, not even at the end. It's in the middle. In fact, it's the second one. The oldest manuscript that we have of the book of Hebrews is a collection of Pauline letters starting with the longest to the shortest, and Hebrews is the second longest, so it's right behind the longest, which is Romans. So if you actually look at the original manuscript, it goes Romans, Hebrews, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, and then the manuscript ends, even though there's more Pauline letters, probably because they were lost, because manuscripts, they're just pieces and parts of documents that have been recovered. Actually, what I want to do is I want to show you this original manuscript, just show you what it looked like over on the screen. All right. This is what 
the original, this is the oldest copy of Hebrews in existence. Starts right there, and that says cross Hebraeus. Cross Hebraeus, which is to the Hebrews. That's how it begins, and here's the first four verses are written right here. It's very, very, it's, this is dated about 200 A.D. And it's a very complete copy of Hebrews. It actually has, it's missing like three or four verses because they're caught on the bottom edge and deteriorated away. But that's, that's how far it goes back. And notice from the original, it says, to the Hebrews. So we know the audience was to the Hebrews, <laughs> which are Jews. But we don't know which Jews, so we don't know where they were located. And I'll leave that up there if you want to gawk at it a little bit, because it's just kind of cool. I like, I like looking at stuff like this. Even if you can't make it out, it's just fun to know that our scriptures today come from documents like that. And we can be certain that what we have in our translations today go back to a document at least that old. 18, 1,800 years ago. All right. So, how do we know it's probably not Paul who wrote it? Well, it's written in classical Greek, and Paul didn't write in classical Greek. He wrote in a more street language that was more acceptable to, more known by the common man. This, this book is written that the educated could understand it, because the words are big, and the the language is, is just, it's flowery and special. So Paul, it doesn't have his writing style. And even though I've heard, and this is true, that the theology of Hebrews is Pauline, what that means to me is it's complementary to Paul. It's, it agrees with Paul. It doesn't contradict Paul, but it doesn't mean... Paul would have said it this way because there's a whole lot of statements in Hebrews that Paul never says anywhere else if, if Paul wrote it. Words that we'll encounter today in the first couple verses. Radiance, the word for radiance in verse 3, not used anywhere else in the Bible, in the Greek Bible. Um, exact imprint, also that verse, that's a, that's a one-off too. So he's calling the sun the radiance of his glory. That's not a Pauline expression. The exact imprint or impression of his nature, that's not a Pauline expression. True, consistent with what Paul says, but not something Paul would have said, probably. Even the statement in verse 4, he made purification for sins. Do you realize Hebrews is the only, only book? in the New Testament that talks about making purification for sins. That might surprise you. The writer of Hebrews came up with that, described the work of Christ, the gospel, as a purification for sins. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of your confession. Nowhere else in Scripture is Jesus called an apostle. Nor... Is he called a high priest in any other book outside of this one? So this particular author is bringing new 
words and new descriptions and new uh, metaphors to describe the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. Not Pauline. At least Paul didn't use these words anywhere else. But they're very consistent with what Paul said, and we'll see that later on. We'll compare what Paul said versus what he said. And you'll see the ideas are the same, just different language. And perhaps most important to making the statement that Paul didn't write is if you look at Hebrews 2.3, the author makes a claim about himself that Paul would not make. He says that the word was delivered first from Christ. Well, somebody read that. I don't actually have it up. Hebrews 2, 3. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. It was attested to us by those who heard. It was declared to us by the Lord and attested to us, presumably the guy writing, or the people writing. Notice it's plural. It's possible this was a collaborative effort. It was attested to us by those who heard. Now, Paul never said that when he wrote. Remember, he was always, I'm an apostle. I heard it straight from Christ, right? If Paul wrote this, why would he say, I didn't hear from it when I... I heard from him in all the other letters, but in Hebrews, no. No. So this is a second generation, if you will. So someone who heard it probably from Paul. Because it's likely that Paul, whoever wrote it, knew Paul well. And that's the next point I've got there. We know it was probably someone who knew Paul well because at the very end, he says... Timothy will come to you shortly. And Timothy, if you know, Timothy was Paul's true child. Paul's favorite son. Paul's protege. Paul's um, successor. So, whoever wrote it knows Timothy and is telling the audience, Timothy's coming, Timothy's coming. So, okay. If he knows Timothy. He probably knew Paul very well. And, of course, his theology is consistent and complementary to Paul's. And um, I'll just say this. The other reason, well, as I've already said, it's already included in the Pauline corpus in papyri number 46 right there. So from the early on stages of the church, this document was thought to be associated with Paul. If you, I think if you look at the King James, it'll actually say the letter Paul to the Hebrews in its title. It just came down to tradition that Paul wrote it. It was part of the collection of letters that were associated with Paul. So what's going on here? Here's probably what's going on. Hebrews is dated to about 65 AD. Paul was executed 60, 62-ish. So this was probably written after Paul died by one of his apostolic team members, someone like Luke, someone like Silas, maybe Apollos, people who worked closely with him. So, essentially, 
we know that this is Pauline. The guy who wrote it is probably, probably um, someone who knew him well. Now, who are the recipients? The Hebrews. That's pretty wide and open there. We have another clue as to who they were from the ending of the letter. The very last verse says those from Italy send their greetings. So not only Timothy, those from Italy send their greetings. Now, what does that mean? That means, could mean that either... That's not me, is it? Those from uh, Italy, so that Italy, either the people he's writing to are either, they know people from Italy. So he's either writing to people in Italy, and he's saying, hey, my friends here are from Italy, who you know, are saying hi. Or the other way around, he's saying, I'm in Italy, and there's other people around me saying hi to you. So he's either writing to Italy or he's writing from Italy. Take your pick. But he's writing to Jewish people. And we also know that because primarily this, this whole letter here is extremely steeped in the Old Testament. In order to understand Hebrews, you've got to know your Bible. You have to know your, your Old Testament Bible really well. And Jews knew it well. So it's probably a Jewish person, probably writing to Jews who know all the stuff that's in Hebrews. Because he quotes all kinds of Old Testament scriptures, primarily from Genesis and Psalms. But he is referring to the Jewish traditions throughout. So we think he's writing to Jews. And the early Christians thought so too, because it says pros hebreos, to the Hebrews. Get my cursor over here now. So I can get move my notes to the next page. <laughs> All right. Second page. Now this like this is more for your reading. If I went through this, we will This is recurring themes in Hebrews. Just to give you a big picture of what Hebrews is all about. I would sum it up. There's a primary indicative or truth statement. Indicative means statement of truth, statement of assumed to be true, or facts for the sake of argument. And then there's imperatives, which are commands. That's true for all letters, basically. You start with truth, and then these commands flow out of them. What is the primary indicative? What do I think it is? Simple. I just simply say Jesus is better. Just simplify to that. Or he does better. Is or does. Either way, sometimes he's just better because he is, and sometimes he's better because he does better things. And I've listed a whole bunch of them there just for your reference if you don't you could go and say there's another theme for Hebrews, but I run with this one because I think it just works. He speaks a better word. He's better than the angels. Provides a better salvation. He's better than Moses. He provides a better rest than Joshua. He's a better high priest. Provides better hope. Guarantees a better covenant. He's a better mediator. He enacts better promises. Provides a better sacrifice. Provides better sanctification. And he provides something much better for us. And at the very end, he provides a better mountaintop experience. Chapter 12, if you know what that's about. 
So basically, Jesus is better. You name it, he's better. Now, better primarily than what? Now, everything I mentioned there was Old Testament stuff. So basically, what Jesus brings, he brings what was Old Testament, and he makes it better. So everything in there is an Old Testament concept that has been improved by Jesus. And that's, that's the truth that Hebrews hammers home right out of the gate and won't let go. And what are we to do about it? What's the response to this truth? If Jesus is better than everything, what are we supposed to do? The primary imperative, the first imperative, consider Jesus. Think about him. Look at him. Fix your eyes on him. Just consider him. Let your mind roll over these thoughts and just think about how awesome and how good and how much better Jesus is. And I listed the four places in Hebrews that command that. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1, it's kind of insinuated. It's not really a command there, but it says we must pay much closer attention, which means listen up and look. Chapter 3, verse 1 is where it's explicit. Consider Jesus, our apostle and high priest. Consider him as an apostle, which, as I said, no other author ever told us, challenges to think that way. Jesus is an apostle. Consider it. And it's a command. It's not an invitation. It's a command. Consider him as an apostle. And, by the way, I got one better. Consider him as a high priest. Think about that. That's the command of Hebrews. And he's going to spend chapters. Chapter 5, chapter... Well, 6, he kind of takes a break. 7, 8, 9, and 10 on... Jesus, the great high priest. Five chapters devoted to this idea of Jesus as the high priest. Remember, no one else has said consider him as a high priest until this letter. And then at the end, he sums it up again. The last great command in chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Or as the King James and I believe the New American Standards say, Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) To our church, we have a tagline that says, Fixed on Jesus. This is exactly where it came from. Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Look at him, consider him, think hard about him. And in the next verse, he says it again. Consider him who endured such great suffering. Considering Jesus. So there you go. Four times it's explicit commanded consider Jesus now of course there are other imperatives famous ones but I submit to you that all of them build upon the foundation of the first one you can't do the next ones that I've listed here the common ones three of them there's actually more than that unless you've considered Jesus unless you're considering Jesus unless you're continuing to fix your eyes on Jesus these other very well-known commands that we memorize and cross-stitch and encourage people with, they flow out of this consideration of Jesus. The first one, the famous one, draw near to God, draw near to the throne of grace. Notice I've listed, there's an interesting pattern with these. These three commands are listed consecutively in chapter 10, 22, 23, and 24. But they're also, early in the book, there as well. 
and they're kind of in reverse. The first one mentioned is in Hebrews 3.12, and then 4.14, and then 4.16. But the three commands are draw near to God, fix your eyes on him, draw near to him, hold fast your confession, twice, Hebrews 4.14, Hebrews 10.23. And then there's a consider one another, do it in the company of other believers. That shows up first in Hebrews 3 and 4, and then Hebrews 10.24 says, consider one another how to stimulate one another good deeds. Remember that famous one? Mm-hmm. Not neglecting to gather, is the, as is the habit of some. That's that command. So that, there, those are the big commands. That's the point of Hebrews. It's, it's about that. Now, I did skip over some characterization back on page one. I wanted this is important now that I've said all that. <laughs> what do we know about the recipients besides the fact they were Hebrews and they were somehow associated with Italy, either living there or, or new people from there? Hebrews does tell us some clues in chapters 5, chapter 6, and chapter 10. I've listed them there. The first set of clues are negative and bad. And the second set of clues are positive and good. Chapters 5, he says, you guys are dull of hearing. That's not good. And he essentially says they're immature. They come to need milk and not solid food. But then later on in chapter 6, he commends them for their hard work and the love they've shown and the service they've shown for all the saints. And in chapter 10... He commends the fact that they've endured a lot of persecution, and they did it. They accepted it joyfully, the seizure of your property, right? 1032-34. So that's what we know about the recipients and what we can gain from that and how we can relate to these recipients and see this could be a good thing for us too. These people have been Christians a while. They've got a reputation for hard work, good service, genuine love and they've even endured persecution and accepted it joyfully they've got a history but they got a problem now they're dull of hearing and amazingly despite all that they're immature so perhaps you could use this Pauline expression to explain what they were they were weary growing weary and well doing they were trudging beat up just trudging through life and this author tells them here's what you need to do if you find yourself trudging dull of hearing tired of hearing it another sermon gospel Jesus stuff whatever (laughs) and if you're actually still immature as described, we'll get to that probably not till the next set of teachings. But here's what you need to do, guys. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Draw near to him. Hold fast to that confession. And look outside of yourselves to others and help them. All right. So there you got it. We're done. <laughs> That's the message of Hebrews. <laughs> I was going to say, that's the sermon we can go home now. <laughs> Got it. So in the time remaining, I want to dig into 
the first four verses. These first four verses are a single sentence in Greek, which, that's Pauline, although Paul goes, four is short for Paul. Paul goes 12, 18. So, keeping up with his mentor, Paul, who probably was a mentor to this person, I'll go four. And uh, scholars call this the exordium. I thought that was a cool word, so I threw that in there. The exordium, the first four verses. One sentence. Now, whenever I see, and if you've been, if you were with me in my Hebrews class, not my Hebrews, my Ephesians class, you know that he, Ephesians has long sentence after long sentence, and the way I go about it, it's the way I do it, is I, I look for the main subject and the main verb, and say, okay, that's the main, main thing. And everything else, all the other 17 verses, hang on that main point. So that's what I did here. The, the main subject, there's only one subject of this sentence. And I listed them there. Shows up in verse 1, and he's repeated with he in verse 2. It's God. And the God here is implied to be God the Father. Largely because of what he's going to say later. Just a few words later. So, starts with God, the subject. And what is God doing? What's the main verb? He spoke. God spoke. That's the main point. God spoke. And who did he speak to? He spoke to us. Wow. God took enough interest to speak to us. Now, this is the only first person pronoun in chapter one. Chapter one is not about us. Chapter one is about God and who he spoke through, his son, Entirely. Chapter 1 doesn't have anything to do with us, except for right here. This is where we fit in. The whole point is God spoke to us. So listen up. Listen to this God and listen to the Son that he spoke to us through. It's all about God and his Son. Primarily it's about the Son. Because that's what uh, verses... 2B through uh, 4 are going to be about is explicitly saying who the Son is. But before we get there, let's, let's, let's listen to this. Now, I, I wrote it. God spoke to us in Son. Your translations probably say through His Son or by His Son. That's not wrong. But the preposition in the Greek is in. And in can mean through or by. So through or by is cool, but I submit to you that it's a little limited. Because when you think of God speaking through his son, it kind of makes you think, okay, so Jesus is just the mouthpiece of God. But when he says God spoke in son, it's a little bigger than that. It's not just what Jesus said. It's what he did. It's who he was. Everything 
the Son is, and everything the Son does speaks to us. God didn't just speak words to us. He spoke through actions. And he revealed his character. So when he says God spoke to us in Son, this is, this is a, a big deal. Look to Jesus. Look to the Son and let him speak to you in a multitude of ways. Not just what he said, but what he does, who he is. Everything he did, his entire work from incarnation to exaltation at the right hand. Consider it. Listen to it. That's the main imperative of Hebrews. And God sent him to us. Now he did provide a care, he did provide a comparison. This is the first better statement, if you will. I skipped over verse one because verse one wasn't the main point. It's actually what's called a participle. It's, it's an, it supports the subject God. It's saying, oh, by the way, God also spoke long ago in many ways and many times in the prophets. The word there is in the prophets. And it's just a means of comparison. He says, look, this is how he used to speak. The Old Testament, which contains that old speech, if you will, it's written down for us. It took a thousand years to write the Old Testament. Many times. Many times. Speaking to Moses, speaking to Joshua, speaking to David, speaking to Elijah, speaking to Isaiah, Jeremiah, I mean, a thousand years is generations. They're all prophets. They can all be considered prophets. He spoke over a long period of time, and he spoke sporadically in individual people called prophets. He didn't consolidate it all in one place. But look, compare. This is much better. Now he's given us son. The New Testament is entirely about this son. It was composed within 50 years. 50 years of revelation about the son as opposed to a thousand years the old way. And he did it all in one person in one place. Basically at one time, relative. 50 years versus a thousand is less than 1% of the time. This is better. The son has now come. Pay close attention to this son. God sent him to us to speak. How much time do I have? 20 minutes. Good, good, good. There's a lot to say about this son in the next few verses. Because the, the, the next few verses, 2b, 3, and 4, are all relative phrases, participles, describing the Son. The first verse was hanging on the Father, saying he spoke a long time ago in a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. Now he's given us the Son. Listen to him. Now it's all about, okay, what, what's so big about the Son? Who? Son. Let me know. What's up? What's up with the Son? Well, he lets us know. 
And I'm actually, if you look at the notes, I'm going to go through this list three different ways. Okay, there's seven, seven attributes of the sun. And I've listed them on the next page. <laughs> seven times. Three times. So, the first way we're going to look at it, we're going to look at this. See, this is what Hebrews does for us. It's like looking at a gem through one facet, and then you turn it, and you look. And then you look here, and then you look in this light, and you hold it against the dark, and you see new things popping everywhere you look. That's what the author of Hebrews is going to do through this whole book. He's going to, let's look, look here. Now, oh, now, hey, look over here. Now, now look at Jesus over here. That's, that's what's going on here. And here he provides seven quick ones. And this is not an introduction to the rest of the book because some of these he never talks about again. He just mentions them and that's it. In fact, most of them, that's true. But this is, this is what we should know about this son. He's divine. He's God. Only God could have these characteristics. Only God. So the first big point you're supposed to get out of chapter one is this son is no ordinary son. This son is God too. Not God junior too, but God also. Like God the Father, we have God the Son. And only God can do this. This son does this. First, he was appointed the heir of all things. The heir of all things. All things belong to him. You can take that away. Okay, that, that's God. Yeah. Why? Because through him, through the son, he created the world. The son was, he created the world. God created the world through his son. Which maybe to the original readers, they were thinking, Really? How does that work? Now remember, when Hebrews was written, Hebrews was probably the last letter written, the last New Testament book written prior to the Apostle John getting his anointing and kicking off the last five books of the Gospel of John. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. So, John hasn't written John chapter 1 yet. Where do you think he got the idea? In the beginning was the word. He got it from here. He got it from Hebrews. The author of Hebrews pointed it out. Through him he created the world and God speaking through him. Speech, creation, through this son. And what does Genesis say? Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be speech, speech, creation, 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 right? Through, so God the Father spoke into existence. He, he did it through the Son. That means the Son is the spoken word of God. Ooh. So John the Apostle writes, in the beginning was the Word. And that's where we get the Word from. It's like a springboard from a Hebrews 1 to John 1. One Came a little later. And I believe that's where John was. John had the benefit of everything written in front of him. And he could take it all and, whoa, here, I'm going to write this and this and this and this. He had the final say. And Hebrews had the say prior to him, the final say prior to him. So he's taking these first two verses and he's, he's going to develop that theology 
more clearly in a way of, in the beginning was the Word. I'm just going to call Jesus the Word, he says. Hebrews has come short of that, but he's basically describing him as the Word right here. So he creates the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Why did I list those as one? You could split those out. But then you'd have eight, and eight's not a cool number. Seven's better. <laughs> but there's actually another reason for that. It's because in the Greek, these two phrases are held together by a conjunction that would tell you that they're meant to be taken together. It's not with the others. So it's like these two are basically saying the same thing two different ways. So the point of this is he's the exact image of God. He radiates all the glory of God. Everything about this son is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's got the nature of God. And I, I had to write the word there for this nature. It's hypostasis. That's it's listed in your notes. This is a very interesting word that um, only the author of Hebrews uses to apply. He uses it three times, and all three times it's phenomenal because it doesn't Three times are amazing, but they don't really, you wouldn't think they were the same word because they're used three different ways. The other famous time this is used is, is Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith. Where it says, uh, what? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The essence. The conviction of things not seen. That word conviction and essence is the same word, hypostasis. Faith is an essence of things not seen. It's a very fascinating word, used very differently in Hebrews 11 as it is here, but I list it there because it's just amazing that he's the exact, it's the essence of God. Everything that is God, Jesus is the exact imprint of it. He's the image of it. He's divine. Then the next one. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He doesn't just create things. He sustains things. He keeps them going. He holds on to them. They, they hold together, really. They, they just, he sustains everything. This speaks of his sustaining providence. Everything in the universe is held together by this sun. And notice the word. Word. It's the spoken word. His spoken word, this word, the, the word, who is with God and who is God, sustains everything. His word is holding everything together right now. Jesus is holding everything together. That's pretty divine. Then comes number five, which is actually... The gospel. He made purification for sins. And this is like a set of phrases that's unique to Hebrews. Paul doesn't use this idea of making purification for sins. He uses words like propitiation. He's got another way of looking at it. Paul uses the courtroom term. This author is going to go with the priest. He's going to... Who else made purification? In the Old Testament, the priests would purify things by making sacrifices. He's going to go that way, and he's going to have us consider Jesus as a high priest. 
But that, that's the one little hint of the gospel in this statement. It's all about Jesus creating, radiating glory, sustaining. Oh, by the way, he made purification for sins. He dealt with sins. And that's all he's going to say about for now. But that will become a huge, huge, huge deal because this is the gospel in chapters to come. But right now, that's all he says about it. That's it. And what did he do after he made purification for sins? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he's reigning over everything. And he's become a much superior to the angels. Notice it says, inheriting a much better name. And remember, the first one was, he's appointed the heir of all things, and now he's inherited it. One, he's, it's like at the beginning, he, it was, you're going to be the heir of all things, and then by the time you get to seven... He's the heir of all things. All right, so he's divine. But there's other stuff going on in there. And I'm going to go through the next list. And I want you to see if you compare these four verses to Paul's Christological statement in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Which is an amazing statement too that you could spend weeks preaching on and teaching on. This is how we know, I think, the author, like I said, John got the word from him. He got these ideas from Paul, because Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1. And I just list them all, and there are phrases in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. In fact, why don't somebody read that? Just read 15 through 20, if you have it. It's another one of these amazing statements. Anybody have it? Yeah. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 15 through 20. 15 through 20. Gotcha. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That sounds very, 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 very similar to what we're reading here in Hebrews, doesn't it? And I've listed all seven in the comparisons right there. I may not spend a lot of time. I think it's pretty obvious. Appointed the heir of all things. All things were created for him. Through him he created the world, by him all things were created, and, and another statement as well listed in there. He's the radiance of the glory of God, exact imprint of his nature. He's the image of the invisible God. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. In him all things hold together. He made purification for sins, making peace by the blood of his cross. Pauline, same thing. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the head, firstborn from the dead. He was raised, seated, head over the church. 
He's become much superior to angels, inheriting a much better name, that in everything he might be preeminent. So you can see this isn't just unique to Hebrews, but it is a unique way of saying it. All right. Now I want to get to the final look at these seven. Not only is Jesus divine, he's also human. Because these seven things hint at something else. He's not just another spiritual form of God. He became incarnate. He became a man. He became like us. This is not the main point of chapter 1, but it's, you, have, you have to see it here. There's so many hints. This is how we know it. Look at this again. He was appointed the heir of all things. That indicates that he wasn't yet the heir of all things. There was a point when he wasn't. He was appointed to become the heir of all things. Now, was he the heir of all things as, the, as son forever? In a sense, he was. But he couldn't become the heir of all things until he became one of those things. Became a man. He was appointed to become a man and go through this whole salvific process as a man so that he could become the heir of all things. So that's hinting at something's got to change. He's not the heir yet. He's going to become the heir. Through him he created the world. Now this, this is very divine, of course. But I am going to say the word for world is actually ages in Greek. Through him he created the ages. He didn't just create at the beginning of time. He's going to create at the end of time. The new heavens and the new earth too. All ages are his. And we know from Jesus is going to come back and reign in the flesh in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's a hint that there's a new age coming where yeah, he created all things as the word of God at creation, but he's also going to create all things when he comes back to take flesh and blood who trust in him with him and to reign for the rest. He's going to create that one too as a man. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Now that's clearly divine. However, how can we tell how do we know? How could we possibly see that he's this? That this is true. Unless he came in a form that we could see. How do we know he's the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature? Because he walked the earth. And a whole bunch of people saw him and they wrote about it. He's best viewed as these two attributes of God in the flesh. That's where it's most evident, most obvious. We can see it. We can touch it. That's how John actually started 1 John, remember? What we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched with our hands. Listen to me. I touched him. That's what he's saying, John. John is saying that. I know he's the radiance of his glory. I know he's the imprint of his nature because I saw him and I'm writing it for you all to see. He's now a man. We can see it. And I've listed a whole bunch of references in Mark from Mark 1 all the way to Mark 16. If you read them, they're, they're awe statements. They're like people go, wow. Whoa, what did he just do? Whoa. 
And the transfiguration's in there too. That's an obvious one. But it's like, the wind and the sea obey him? Astonished at his teaching. Where does he get this authority? That's, that's where the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature is most evident to us. He had to become a man for us to see that and to hear about it and to believe it. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, this is all divine, but <laughs> I just think this is a fascinating statement. When he became incarnate, and he was just a little uh, fetus in the womb, he was still upholding the universe by the word of his power. Just think about that. He had the nature of a man, and he was still upholding. His divinity was still, I mean, it's like he, he married the two in a, in a way that blows our mind. How can you do that? How can a newborn baby be sustaining the entire universe? That's one you can think about. Don't ask me to explain it. But that is true. He made purification for sins. Now this one, actually, this is the most human of the seven. The statement, he made purification for sins, is clearly a priestly statement. Only a human priest can do this, and he does it by the shedding of blood of animals in the Old Testament. Jesus is going to do it with a better sacrifice. You can guess what that is. He had to be a man to do this. Only a man can do this. This is an entirely human description of something divine, divinely determined, but only the man could do it, could make the purification for sins. And then after he did that, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Only a man can sit down. How does a spirit sit? He's seated as a human at the right hand of God right now. And now that he's there, he's much more superior to the angels. We'll be talking about this next week and in the weeks to come. He became less than the angels, according to Psalm 8, and then... Now he's above them, seated above them, because he's inherited a much better name, and he's seated there, ready to inherit all things, come back as a man, and inherit the rest of it at some point. So there's this whole process here. He was designated an heir. He's going to go through this human incarnation, make purification for sins, come back, sit down, become the heir of all things. And he needed to be a man to do it. I got through four verses. Okay. So next week we'll go through more than four verses. I promise you. <laughs> next week we'll finish chapter one as the goal. It's going to take these four verses and expound them using the Old Testament to support it. He's going to quote the Psalms about six or seven times and say, I didn't make this up. Everything I just told you, it's in the Psalms a thousand years ago. He fulfilled Psalms. That's coming next week. All right. I'm going to close in prayer and we'll be done.
Father, thank you for this time to consider the Son. Consider Him as one you've installed at your right hand to rule all things. And one who is not ashamed to call us brothers, those of us who trust in Him. Please, Lord God, encourage us with these words. Let us, our faith, grow through this. And bless your people. In the Son's name, amen.